Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Brothers F Bookcast. And today, I've just learned about a new feature that I was unaware of on Zencaster. Apparently, if you hit the record button and everyone continues to talk, Zencaster will patiently refuse to record until everyone shuts up. So I literally said, shh, into the uh, microphone before and everyone had to quiet up before Zencaster would allow us to proceed. So you know what I have to say? Um, I think I was said this the other day on the pod, but I appreciate the paternalism. Thank you, Zencaster. Um, all right, anyone have anything to say to that? I feel like a really awkward silence for you all. I'm just trying to caffeinate because I woke up maybe five minutes ago. Tough uh, exam week or? Uh, I just got an exam yesterday. It was kind of a weak exam, so I shouldn't be I shouldn't be complaining too much. Um, but yeah, uh, I woke up at yeah just before we recorded this episode. Well, you know, most people would say, you know, um, I don't know, caffeine may not be the best thing for you, Andres. They say that you know a caffeine dependency is not the best thing for you. So I've I've kind of uh, stopped having caffeine. You know, once in a while I'll have like green tea, but I never like coffee because it tastes like it tastes like dirty water and it stains your teeth. And um, I mean, do I need any other reasons? I just don't like it. And uh, I don't want to be dependent on some foreign yeah. substance to wake up in the morning. Yeah, I always said that for many years. I just don't want to be dependent. I don't want to like have to have tea or coffee or whatever. Um, and then I met this this uh, dude at a lab I was working at for the summer. He was like, dude, why do you care? I mean, like, if it makes you better at your job, then like, who cares if it's really like dependence on the on the on the on the caffeine? And I was like, ah, he's actually kind of got a point. And that was the summer I started drinking. <laughs> Just tea, um, just every morning, just a just a cup of tea because it's like not a lot of caffeine, just like a little 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 bit every morning, um, and it actually like significantly changed my grades in college. Like the before and the after are noticeably different, uh, so I, I I never looked back after that. I'm gonna jump in and contest that claim, Andrew, as someone who's taking a class on causal inference. I, I want to push back on that. No, I'm kidding. That's, I think I think there's something to what you say. Here's my take on the dependency question because I I know a lot of people voice that, and I don't want to sound like a you know too zealous in my defense of caffeine here, but I too didn't want to be dependent once upon a time, but I realized we're dependent on so much already. And I, I felt that drinking coffee or drinking tea would be so unnatural. I just wanted to get to the place where I slept well every night and then I felt refreshed all day. And then I realized, wow, there's so much that's unnatural about my day. There's no way I'm saving the naturalness of my existence, right? Like sitting in a chair all day, not what we were made for. Looking at screens all day, not what we were made for. Waking up to an alarm, not what we were made for, you know? So I just add something else. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. My point is that the cat's out of the bag. So why don't I just add something else to mitigate feeling crummy? Because there's no way that I'm living uh, sort of the way we're evolved to live. Yeah, that's fair enough. Caffeine yeah, has zero effect on me. So. Oh, really? For me, like, sucks. I've, I've had, no, I don't even think that's a bad thing. Because I'm just a natural energetic person anyway. So maybe that's why. 
Can I tell a story? Yes, sure. Once upon a time, uh, not now, because it's a terrible use of money and bad for your health. But once upon a time, I would go to Dunkin' Donuts for work. And they make a very delicious breakfast uh, sandwich, uh, sausage, egg, and cheese croissants, which is like, it just hit the spot, okay? And I would also at the same time drink a large iced coffee with cream and sugar. And I decided that maybe all that caffeine wasn't good for me. So I, I thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to replace the coffee with a juice and maybe that'll be like slightly less terrible. And what happened is once I was no longer drinking the coffee, I completely lost the desire to consume the sugar and the fat and the carbs, right? What was drawing me in every morning was the caffeine, which I didn't think was having that much of an effect on me. But once I took it off the table, like my desire to go there faded. Wow. Interesting. That actually makes sense because I know... I know people who, like, what was bringing you in was the coffee. That's exactly it. Because I know people who, I used to have a coworker um, who, like, he would always say, ah, oh, the first sip every time he would have his first cup of coffee. And, like, it was his routine. And you, you couldn't get him away from it. It's like, I need that first sip of coffee. So it was that experience of having that coffee that was that was really bringing you in, not, not the breakfast sandwich or, or anything else. Well, I see parallels here to another another book by Taleb uh, from a while back. If, I don't know if you guys remember, but he was talking about rationality. Um, what was the name of the book again, DH, that we covered on the pod? Fooled by Randomness. Fooled by Randomness. And his point was that, look, we're never going to totally not be irrational. I hope the double negatives canceled out there. Like, we're never going to be fully super irrational beings that are like, never fooled. So you sort of got to pick your battles and then sort of know how to relax in certain situations. I feel like the same is true of these dependency things is like set yourself up for success, you know, don't have too much coffee and don't fill your coffee with a bunch of cream and sugar so that you start gaining weight. And then I feel like, you know, you're in a good position. I'm with you. I think picking, picking battles is like, uh, I get a lot of mileage out of that idea. Like I remember at the beginning of COVID, I uh, I was frustrated because there are all these super reasonable people who in like some dimensions were sort of like a nine or a 10 out of 10, but then in other dimensions were like a, a two or a three out of 10 in terms of their COVID uh, safety, I guess. And so it felt so silly. It's like, really, you're wiping down your grocery bags after you bring them home, but you're also, I don't know, going out and doing this thing, which seems to me sort of to have a much greater chance of getting COVID. But I realize it's unfair to people to do that because the only way to survive and stay sane in this world is to, as you say, pick your rationality battles. So you got to give people some room to be a little inconsistent because you can't fight them all. So you just pick some and you live with the fact that uh, that you're not super consistent. Guys, uh, that this is a good moment to introduce one of the aphorisms from uh, the Bed of Procrustes. Uh, which who, the premise of which we will explain in a second, but it, this is just too pot, spot on. I couldn't resist. It, it feels, uh, it feels uh, just too appropriate. So here is the aphorism that I just happened to be open to on the page. 
It is the appearance of inconsistency and not its absence that makes people attractive. Wow, I have to chew on that. But Fran, can you give me and the listener some background about the better procrastinators? Because I think we kind of snuck into that and we didn't sort of set the stage. Yeah, I mean, we can, we can continue the banter for a little bit, but I'll just explain it, it. Look, so are you guys familiar with the book Beyond Good and Evil? No. 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 You're kidding. By Nietzsche. Oh, Sorry. yeah. Shoot, shoot. That's why I, I took a class on Nietzsche. Uh, yeah, I am. I just didn't remember that the name. He, he had a lot of uh, quote unquote books. They're not really books. They're more just a series of aphorisms. Much like this. Yeah, exactly. Much like yes. this. Um, so if the, Nietzsche the guy was were kind of off today, kilter, but yeah. Now they're here. He wouldn't it. have, uh, the book wouldn't have been just collected aphorisms. It would be like the collected tweets of Nietzsche. Um, <laughs> and this makes it sound so much lamer. <laughs> well, I, I'm pretty sure a lot of these were in some previous incarnation uh, tweets. Uh, it seemed Nicholas Taleb that have now been collected into a book of aphorisms, but he's organized them around a theme. And the theme has to do with the myth of the bed of Procrustes. To what extent are you all familiar with that? Myth? I am familiar. Zero. 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 Okay. Zero. So the idea here is that uh, Procrustes had a home and he had a Depending on the myth, he had one or two beds, but I'll go with the two-bed version. And the idea is that he would uh, he would uh, invite guests in, and depending on whether they were tall or short, he would put them, if they were short, he would put them on the long or, or big bed and stretch them out. And if they were tall, he'd put them on the short bed and chop off their feet or whatever, or saw off their feet. So he's kind of this like weird sadist and the, the bed sort of you were forced to conform to the bed instead of the bed conforming to you. And it's a, you know, it's the, uh, you know, Procrustean bed is an expression that sort of worked its way into the culture since then. And the idea is that you're uh, optimizing for the wrong thing, right? You're not, you know, the easy and obvious solution is to put the tall person in the big bed and the short person in the short bed instead of mutilating them to make them fit the bed. Um, so this is apparently, and, I, and frankly, I do not see it for all of these aphorisms, but he says this is the motivating principle behind these aphorisms. That there were, were and I, I assume, and maybe, you know, Talib is cleverer than I, but I assume what he, all these aphorisms are to some extent about optimizing for the wrong thing. That's cool. Let me ask Fran. Do you hate this book? Uh, no, I don't personally hate this book. I don't. So, so I, 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 I did have a hate read picked out for today. Uh, but you know what? I was talking with Andrew and Kwambi, who's actually not on the episode today, but I was getting very tepid hate from them. And I was concerned that the episode would be lame without the hatred. So I called it yeah. a uh, But now I'm getting pushed back from you guys. And it seems like you guys want to talk about your hate reads a little bit. I just, I had a lot of trouble finding a hate read because I feel like when I read things, I'm careful to pick things that I know I will probably like, and why would I make myself read something I hate, you know? Uh, Let me jump in and answer that question, Andrew. Then you can talk about a book you hate. Now, I have, I totally get that. I stopped uh, reading books that I dislike 
But I was sort of perfectly set up for this episode because the summer after I graduated from high school, I decided that I would read as many sort of big name American novels as possible. And I read like 12 or 14 or something. I read a ton because I had a job where I waited around a lot. Uh, and so I read, I sort of forced myself through some books that I wasn't super excited about because I thought, well, it's a big deal. You know, clearly a lot of people like this book or people think this book is important. So let me just eat my vegetables. That's probably the last time I'll do that in my life because I think life is too short to read books that you don't enjoy. But it was a formative year. And so my hate read comes from that summer. Okay. And what, what is it? Well, uh, I had some trouble choosing. I had options, you know. I read some Faulkner that summer. Really did not dig the Faulkner, the William Faulkner. But, uh, but I ended up landing on Jack Kerouac, who wrote a book called On the Road, which is a pretty famous book. It's from the 50s, and uh, it sort of achieved a certain sort of like mythological status, I would say. So very famously, Jack Kerouac, uh, claimed and and the claim is true. You can still you can you can sort of see this in a museum. He claimed to have written this book uh, over the course of three weeks when he was high on LSD on one continuous scroll. So the scroll is like super long, and I, and I just looked it up, and you can actually see the scroll in a museum. And he did some revision after that, but it was sort of. Uh, all from the heart, so to speak. So the book is sort of semi-autobiographical. There's a French term for this, actually. It's called a roman de cliff, which is sort of like somewhere between autobiography and fiction. So you sort of like layer on some fictional aspects to the story of your life, and you change some names around. Uh, and whatever, he did that. And and uh, I don't know. I guess hate read is a little tricky as an episode because I don't want to totally bias people against the book. Clearly, a lot of people like this book, and I don't want to just like absolutely bash it. But uh... it's it just tough, right? Because I need to both hate a book and hate it in a way that's entertaining and funny. Right, right. right. <laughs> and well, like that Venn diagram is tough to find. Well, that that's where um, that's where school comes in. Because in school, you didn't have a choice on what you read or didn't, and so. Um, uh, that's that's where I, I got my hate read from. And interestingly enough, Pancho, I did read uh, On the Road by Jack Kerouac in school. Oh. And uh, I wasn't I wasn't a huge fan of it either. I wouldn't say it was my top hate read from my time in high school dash college. Um, but it was up there because it just it was just slow. It just I don't know. Um, it's funny, though, that it was made in such a strange way. Uh I mean, authors always do these things differently, but I'm reminded that, uh, that, uh, Kurt Vonnegut had like his way of writing was to write one page and then scrap it and then rewrite it and then scrap it and do so until he loved that page. And then he put it aside and started on this on the second page. Yeah. that was So he had this sort of very methodical, uh, page by page way of writing these books. I'm sure most people just write a draft and then revise drafts like normal people, but I don't know if you get, you get interesting authors. Sometimes they have interesting mechanisms of getting things done. Yeah. That sounds like torture. Um, but I guess Kerouac was sort of the opposite of that. But anyway, let me, let me, let me, let me bash it a little. Um, again, listener. You know, so are, are we doing hate reads or are we doing better procrustes? Right? Because I, I don't know. 
it's a hybrid episode. It's a hybrid episode. I, I guys, I do have a bottom line for this, and I don't think this is even necessarily going to be a hit read, but I, I've come up with a new bit for the podcast, and you can push back if you want. Uh, but I think we should all read Twilight together. And I don't know if it's going to be hate read because I've never read Twilight, and we're not going to read it in one go because it's a big book. What we're going to do is we're going to make it a reoccurring bit where we'll read a chapter and discuss. Uh, not you know not every episode because I think people would get sick of that, but just we're going to sprinkle it in, and eventually over the course of of a year we will make it through Twilight and have had a we will have had our opinions. You know what? I support this because there's a lot of people I meet who are like, you've never read Twilight? And they, this is to them a great insult. So, And, and um, this is someone who's uh, getting his PhD at a very <laughs> uh, prestigious university. So if they're telling him there, what? You haven't read Twilight? That's <laughs> to show the breadth of the audience that, uh, that, that Twilight really has. <laughs> Yeah, I think it just had a formative, formative place in the hearts of a lot of teenage girls in like mid two thousands America. So, out of respect for that, I feel like I should at least know it. Have you guys ever seen a uh, a show called um, Parks and Rec? I've seen like scattered episodes. Yeah, same here. I've I've only seen like a few episodes, but one of the episodes I saw was of this guy who um, the town's doing like a, a time capsule. It's based in some fictional town in Indiana, and it's like the Parks and Rec Department. And this guy, um, you know, they're going to put in some classic things from the town. Like, I don't know what exactly, but like, you know, a clock that was made in the 1800s or whatever, you know, and put them all in the time capsule. And this guy storms into the Parks and Rec office in City Hall, chains himself to the desk of like the, the director there and says, I'm not going to leave here until you put Twilight in the time capsule. And everyone's like, you're ridiculous, you're ridiculous. Uh, and then he gets the entire uh, Parks and Rec department to read Twilight. And they all get on board and vouch for <laughs> it to be put in the time capsule. Because <laughs> they all start viewing it as a story of, uh, of modern love and, and something essential to American uh, culture. So <laughs> I feel like maybe we'll be pulled in that direction. I don't know. I like this idea. Confession time, I read Twilight. I guess... Looking back on it, I'm not sure this term even existed at the time. I sort of binge-read Twilight. Like, I found some of them. I don't know if I read all of them, because there's four. Uh, but I found some of them in the basement when I was in middle school, and, uh, and I was curious. And they're not, uh, they're not too intimidating, I'll say, friend. They're thick books, but they read, they read pretty easy, as far as I remember. And the text is sort of large. So it's not, sort of, uh, it's not as much of a tome as you might think. Well, well, there's only one question that remains: Team Edward or Team Jacob? Oh, that's uh, that's a that's a toughie. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm like on record, you know, like if this podcast sort of takes off one day, which uh, which I hope and expect it will. I don't want to go on record. I don't want to hitch myself to either of those teams. You know, that could come back to bite me either way. So uh, I'm gonna. Well, you can reread it and, and make your decision. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna plead the fifth there. Uh, Very diplomatic of you, Wunsch. Yeah, well, I try, I try. But uh, I like the idea, friend. Okay, well, th that's where we're going. It may or may not become a hate read. It may, it may become a love read, but uh, I, I think that's better than... Uh, I don't know, you guys just aren't hateful. You're too nice. Wait, um, let, me hate, let me hate on the road a little bit. I mean, yeah. I mean just a little. I have... Uh, I guess I'm not, I'm not angry, 
but I have uh, I have some thoughts about on the road. And there's a few things. One is that whenever a work of art sort of becomes legendary, there's some myth about its creation. I mean, this isn't a myth; it's true, right? But whenever there's an origin story, I'm always a little skeptical because, uh, you know, the origin story is now sort of carrying the work of art a little bit, right? Like, oh, that's so cool. He wrote it in like a three-week sort of spell. Uh, so so I think that sort of inflates the reputation of the book. Um, I think the book's not very interesting, right? Uh, I, uh, I was sort of looking back over the book, flipping through it, reading the summary on Wikipedia. And I remembered what I didn't like about the book, which is just that it kept going and it didn't end and there was really nothing to tie together. And I realized that's sort of the point, you know, like, oh, we're cool, we're the beat generation. But, uh, but I didn't love that. And another thing I didn't love, and this is maybe sort of a deeper criticism, so maybe this is less hate and more, uh, I don't know, I don't know what you want to call it. But the book... So the, the, the protagonist of the book, who's sort of a stand-in for Jack Kerouac himself, is named Sal Paradise. And most of the book is about his like relationship and his adventures with his friend named Dean. And both guys misbehave a lot. And Dean is sort of living his whole life just in pursuit of pleasure. Drugs, sex, jazz. Uh, and I think the book, for me, has come to stand for like, a mistake that we make that we tend to make at least like in our society or in my circles where it's like if someone is a total hedonist i guess in modern in modern day we would say he's living his best life you know he's uh he's being true to himself uh it's awesome and that's like a flip that i feel like has totally not served us well since this book was published the flip from like oh it's a good thing to sort of try to sacrifice yourself and put yourself sort of put your needs like behind the needs of other people. I don't know. I, I'm sounding kind of preachy here, but it's really, it's really upheld as this like awesome thing. If you just pursue whatever you want on your own terms and never think about the consequences for other people. doesn't matter if you're like ruining other people's lives, which Dean kind of does, you know, he's like beating women. He's doing all these horrible things. Uh, but because he has some, like some zippy lines and because he owns it, He's supposed to be like this great hero. So I think that's a big blunder. And I guess this book kind of sort of symbolizes that. That's what that's I hate an interesting about the it's, it's interesting you say he becomes this sort of hero because I actually read this for a class called Heroes in Literature. Um, but Juancho, I agree with you. Like I remember reading that book and it was, I mean, it was boring. It was, it was just pure. It, it, I, I just found it boring. I'm like, why, why is this some sort of... Um, you know, I, I'm just being blunt. Maybe, maybe it just went over my head, but I just, I didn't find it all that interesting. You know, like uh, the most interesting part was when That's the a defroster, the defroster machine on his car breaks and like, you know, they have to, you know, manually, like, I, I, I just didn't find it interesting at all, personally. Also, what kind of a hero is that? I mean, like, yeah. oh, going around, like knocking women up and doing his own thing. Like, <laughs> Like, okay, I, I, I'm all for breaking norms that are bad, but, like, I don't know, like, you guys heard of Chesterton's fence? Is like, if a norm is there, and you don't know why it's there, don't just destroy it because you don't like it until you know why it's there. And then, by all means, go ahead, right? 
So like you, you really shouldn't feel that proud of yourself if you take like a stable situation and then just rebel because you're cool, right? It's like, obviously we can look back and say like, oh, you know what? He's just a bad dude and we shouldn't really just make him a hero because he, because he was a rebel. Yeah, I feel like it was, um, you know, the beatniks were, I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I think they were like 50s, 60s. And so I think they were like the precursor to that whole, you know. Um, I don't to the know, hippies, you right? Guys, the you, yeah, to you the guys, hippies. yeah, exactly. Like the sort of 60s counter cultural revolution that occurred. And I think that's really the reason they're um, by some kind of, uh, kind of, uh, you know, looked up to in a way um but i can yeah it's an interesting place to be right because like the beatniks were probably every bit as out there as the hippies but they didn't have sort of a dominant cultural narrative behind them right i mean maybe i'm wrong about this but like the hippies you know they had their marches and they they had their protests and i feel like a lot of people were behind them and they could, were free to do what they wanted uh and the beatniks were probably on the margins of society. I mean, this was the fifties, right? So like, this was still the time of Isle of Lucy and like, you know, early spirited wars that everybody could get behind. Um, and they were on the fringes there instead of being this sort of like celebrated class on some level. But your point also, Diego, that the book is simply boring is maybe even more important and uh, much more succinct. So I want to... I want to uh, underscore that. The book is extremely boring. <laughs> I mean, there's five parts. He just sort of travels around the country. He's in Mexico for a while. He's in San Francisco for a while. Actually, at the end of part two, uh, let me see if I can find it. This is so perfect. At the end of part two, he says, like, I don't really know why I went to San Francisco. And I'm like, that is the book in a nutshell. <laughs> um, so, you know, actually, a major achievement to write a book about drugs and sex and music and make it boring that is a great a point, point. <laughs> lol <laughs> i mean it's, a, it's an accomplishment like you, you know you have to try for that um so all right anyone else have uh any uh hatred they need to unleash on the world well on, i guess on the topic of really boring books um you know uh I, my hate read quote unquote um, I guess I, I have to choose Dandelion Wine by Ray Bradbury, which, um, you know, was one of the first books assigned to me in seventh grade um, by actually like a fantastic English teacher who, you know, I've read the book that uh, this teacher chose was, was pretty good, um, uh, you know, it was pretty great. But this was one of the first ones that was assigned to me. And I remember reading it and thinking, if this is what, you know, middle school and high school is going to be like, I think I just might have to drop out. I, I could not for the life of me get through that book. Okay. And I was coming in with all this eagerness and vigor to succeed, to do well at this new school I was at. Um, but for the life of me, I could not get through this book. It was so boring. I, I don't, I, I'll be honest. So boring. I don't even remember what it was about. But I remember every moment, every sentence of this book being excruciating and impossible to get through. And uh, for that reason, Ray Bradbury, uh, Dandelion Wine. Yeah, that's that's the one book that it's it's boredom at its uh, at its at its at its finest. Yeah, I, I was. I don't, I don't remember it at all. 
So I, I, I have no feelings about it whatsoever. Which may be an indication of how good of a read it was. Um, yeah, yeah right. I feel very strongly not, that a lot not, of these... Uh, not to undercut Diego. Maybe I just wasn't ready for it, or I don't know. Um, sorry, go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, that was actually kind of what I wanted to say, is that I feel like a lot of the books they make us read in middle school, high school, whatever, we're just not ready for. So we end up like not understanding or liking particularly much at all. And then we're, we look back and we're like, I don't even know what that was about. Like entry in seventh grade, they made us read The Once of Future King, which is like a fairly lengthy book to require of seventh graders as they as they enter, right? Like middle school. Um, and it all just went totally over my head. And like, it was just this long slog of me trying to read a book that like, I didn't really like vibe with. And then I reread Once a Future King, like a couple years ago as an adult. And I'm like, oh, this book is actually great. It's super fun to read. I feel like I'm really getting the themes. I like understand what's going on. And just because they tried to shoehorn us into that as seventh graders, it just didn't work. So I feel like they knew, need to do a better job in general of sort of tailoring the book choices to the quality of the student as they're younger. Well, if you want to, I, I had to, I'll be honest, it had been so long since I read it that I had to go on the Wikipedia page to even find out what it was about. Because I just remember, I just remember the pure, like, just how challenging it was to get through it. And so if you want to read- It was agony. Yeah. Just agony, if right? You read because about, like, it just yeah. made no sense. Uh, it's just a quote from Wikipedia. Most of the book is focused upon the routines of a small town America and the simple joys of yesterday. And that's the book right there. That's the only, that's the only plot description you get. <laughs> that's standalone one. That's standalone one for you. So huh. this is cool. Cause I have a, I have a story here that uh, might be illuminating. I read probably like many people. I read the catcher in the rye when I was in the ninth grade. And I absolutely hated it. And it sort of felt like uh, on the road in a way, actually. It's just sort of aimless. This guy's wandering around. He's searching for himself. He doesn't really find himself. End of novel. I just couldn't stand it. And then like four or five years later, I reread The Catch in the Rye and I totally loved it. I just thought, uh, I guess maybe I was sort of able to look back on myself as a teenager and uh, see a lot of holding the character and catching the rye like, in myself or I don't know what changed in those in those four or five years but yeah that makes you wonder like maybe we're not reading these books at the right time well if you want to go ahead and reread Dandelion Wine for us and let us know if that's the case um, <laughs> yeah. that'd be awesome Th thanks for volunteering so um what about you Francisco what what made it on your uh your hate read list so Michael Crichton is an author I normally really like, but he wrote a book called State of Fear. And it's not so much a novel as it is a long rant about global warming not being real disguised as a novel. And I just think that's like a terrible way to write a book. Like I don't, I don't write, I don't read novels to hear your opinions about global warming. I, I read novels to be entertained and like if you need to like if you need to write an essay about global warming to get things off your chest go ahead and do that but don't don't tell me that you're writing a thriller and then give me your rant about global warming 
This is really cool because I'm actually reading a Michael Crichton thriller right now. Uh, I found it, and it's sort of a it's a low enough level book to read before I go to bed, which I like to have sort of a like easier to read book. Uh, and he's so good at doing exactly one thing, which is writing a thriller about humans who have some kind of scientific endeavor that is ambitious, but then eclipses their ambitions and turns on them and sort of bites them in the butt. And I think I feel like he wrote that book like. 10 or 12 times as far as I'm aware. And it, <laughs> and it worked every time. Uh, but it's a very specific kind of thing. So it's interesting to hear when you tried to step outside of that a little bit. It fell flat for you, Fran. I think, did he write Jurassic Park? He wrote Jurassic yeah, Park. Okay, according to, cool. according to, to, to uh, uh, our brother, uh, our abs- one of our absent brothers is really, really good. Um, oh, it's so good. I, I said this line to Juan Carlos once, but I, I really love it, um, is that Jurassic Park, the book, reads like TV watches, is that it is relentlessly entertaining and just like totally sucks you in a way that you just like completely lose track of where you are. Uh, I think it's really cool. It's like a lot of reading for me sometimes is like kind of a chore on some level. And this book is just fun. Yeah. State of fear. I'm, is I'm totally with you. Uh, State of fear. That, you do not get sucked in. Uh, yeah, that's unfortunate. But hey, Michael Crichton, great author. Um, would recommend Jurassic Park if you haven't read it yet because it is just spectacular. So good. Jurassic Park is great. Congo is great. The Lost World, the sequel to Jurassic Park, is also great. Uh, yeah. No, Andrew, I really like that 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 point that Jurassic Park is almost like TV, and I have kind of like a way of thinking about this in my head, which is. Maybe I brought this up before on the pod because like all reading is sort of filtered through this in my mind. That TV, it sort of like knocks on your door and it comes to you like sort of 100% on this scale. Like TV is totally like you're, you can just sort of passively receive it. And then different books, depending on how difficult they are, require sort of a different amount of engagement from you. So like how far out do you have to go? Let's say like TV knocks on your front door, you know, and you open the front door and TV TV's there. Whereas like some books, you know, they're going to meet you on your front porch. You're going to have to get out a little bit, but you can still sort of be comfortable and read them without engaging too much. And then some like really challenging books, you really have to get out far from yourself and sort of like, like bridge, bridge it by going out like quite a bit. You have to do more work. Um, and I can't think of anything that meets you closer than Jurassic Park does, actually. I mean, maybe obviously some kids books or something, but, but you're totally right. Yeah, but the kids' books aren't entertaining, right? It's like, oh, they're easy. Like, oh, The Very Hungry Caterpillar is not a difficult book to read. Um, but I'm not entertained, you know? Uh, but yeah. No, I, it, it, is, it, is a, it is a good point, Lunch. Uh, and you know what? Like, I, I'm fine with the book insisting a lot of me, but it's got to be worth it, right? Like, if you, if you want me to sort of slog through things that are kind of boring or don't make a lot of sense there better be some like really interesting payoff down the line, you know? Yeah, totally. I think uh, this scale is helpful for me because it's like not all books, you know, are going to meet you the same way. And that's okay. It's just a question of timing, I feel like. So sometimes you're willing to sort of like do more of the work and read something more challenging. And it can be rewarding in a way that like the really easy, cheap read isn't. Uh, But I don't know. There's just seasons for everything. Like different things meet you where you're at at different times. So it works out. Okay. Um, 
I'm going to drop some aphorisms on you guys, and we're going to riff for a little bit, because these are just too good. It is, <laughs> trying to call an audible on this episode was a mistake, but I, I can't resist anymore, because you got you to hear some of these. All right. I wonder whether a bitter enemy would be jealous if he discovered that I hated someone else. That's a funny one. Wow. There's, there, <laughs> there's, there's an interesting line um, from... I. It's it's from Mad Men, but it's been memefied, so it's kind of floating around there. And I never even watched Mad Men besides like an episode once for 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 a class in college. So the so the line is: one dude turns to the other one and says, "I feel bad for you," and the second dude looks back and says, "I don't think about you at all." <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> I've I've heard that in context of the episode, there's like other like turns out he actually oh, sorry turns out he actually does think about the guy all the time. Um, but yeah, kind of kind of ties into that quote that you brought up, friend. All right, hatred. This is a very apropos of today. Hatred is much harder to fake than love. You hear a fake love, never a fake hate. You know that's actually pretty good. Because I was, I'm just thinking right now. Yeah. As we're talking through our hate read, you know, we actually, uh, I don't think any of us genuinely hates the books we're talking about. I mean, we did ultimately make it to the end of the books, and I think that naturally, um, like, if you really, really hated something, would you have gotten to the end of it, even if um, you didn't have to, like? We just kind of talked about books we really didn't like, but there's a difference between not liking something and hating something. And, you know, I wasn't getting a lot of hatred vibes, you know, even with mine, right? Like dandelion wine was uh, a very ex- excruciatingly boring experience, but I didn't, I, there wasn't like a, I didn't despise it, you know? And um, I don't know, based on, yeah, voices, I, I don't I think feel like that's the issue. Genuinely hated i mean we just genuinely dislike them but there's a difference between hate and uh dislike you know unrequited hate is vastly more diminishing for the self than unrequited love uh i think that that kind of uh swings back to the first one um let's see uh for most, success is the harmful passage from the camp of hating to the camp of the hated. This guy thought a lot about hatred. Yeah, all this talk about hating and like not caring, like hating versus sort of being indifferent, is making me think about one of my favorite Bob Dylan songs, probably my favorite Bob Dylan song, off of the album Blonde on Blonde. And it opens with these absolutely amazing lines that will like always stay with me. He says, uh, um, he says, I didn't mean to treat you so bad. You shouldn't take it so personal. So it's like, that's a great sort of crummy apology that we've all given. So I feel like that makes the song pretty real. But then he says, I didn't mean to make you so sad. You just happened to be there. That's all. Which is horrible, right? It's like, that's like the worst possible. Now I'm thinking maybe we should just do a Bob Dylan episode, honestly. Um, but yeah, no, I don't know. Those, those lines have just always really struck with me, especially because, yeah, we've all given an apology that's like not really an apology, I feel like. 
and uh, it's it's a really like I, you know it's a really crappy thing to do, <laughs> uh, and uh, I think it captures it captures it well. The test of whether you really liked a book is if you reread it, and how many times. The test of whether you really like someone's company is if you are ready to meet him again and again. The rest is spin, or that variety of sentiment now called self-esteem. That has kind of hints of, of Taleb's idea of skin in the game, right? Just a little bit, a sprinkle. Yeah, no, of... I, I hear you. I, I don't fully get the... I don't, I don't see what any of the first part of the aphorism has to do with self-esteem, but some of these are a little confusing. Um, I, I, honestly, the, the idea of writing a book of aphorisms strikes me as a little vain. Oh, no, it's freaking great. I love it. I'm sorry. I just do. <laughs> no, but like, who writes these sort of aphorisms? Like, I don't know, Ben Franklin did, very, Wittgenstein did. Very vain. <laughs> yes. Taleb is coming up and going to pretend that like he's the next in line. I'm like, are you kidding me, bro? Like, this is kind of like, I don't, I don't know. I'm with Andrew. I think it's a, it's kind of a vain thing to do, and uh, and also not, not not these are not generally sort of really resonating with me. I would say. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and here's, one, here's one that really resonated with me. Okay. The opposite of manliness isn't cowardice; it's technology. That one, that one kind of hit me in the gut. <laughs> there's, a, there's a stupid, there's a stupid online meme of like "Return to Monkey." That's basically what this is. Well, <laughs> I don't know. Like, it just there's something that feels like so profoundly fake and dystopian about the way I live my life. Like, you know, I have this job where I spend a lot of time staring at a screen. I don't get outside as much as I would like. Um, I don't move as much as I would like. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, but that that aphorism, that, that aphorism, I'm just going to call it out as too easy. Too this, easy. Uh, Taleb is better than that. That's just that's just too easy. The opposite of manliness is technology. I don't know. That's that's just too um, too easy. He he could have done better. It, it kind of it, it reminds me of this uh, aphorism that I, I that you know in my. Uh, Nietzsche class that you know just really turned me off to Nietzsche altogether. I, I forget which. I, I just looked it up right now. It's like the great periods of our life occur when we gain the courage to rechristen what is bad about us as what is best. I remember like we spent a class talking about that when I, I was just like, whoa, you know, whoa, that's just whoa, that's just whoa, too whoa, easy. Whoa, slow down. Slow down. Slow down. Slow down. It's too that easy. Material. Actually, really. Awesome. That that one. That one is like, I think that one explains why people like on the road. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Um, yeah, and also this aphorisms talk is is making me realize I forgot to say the thing that I hate the most about on the road, which isn't sort of the moral problems, isn't anything except on the road is like all tell and no show. Like because it's such a legendary book, and because Jack Kerouac had such a healthy appreciation for the role that he would play in history, um, he often sort of like goes into these side things where he talks about like, oh, we were chasing real life, you know, man, real living. And that's what it was all about. It's like, I know, I know that's what this book is about. You don't need to tell me that this book is like an iconic book about people like, you know, <laughs> traveling across America, the bigness of America. And I, as I stood there, I thought about 
all this land rolling out in front of me. It feels so forced and so on the nose. It's it's well, all. T- that's what I mean by too easy. Yeah, it's too easy, and that's what I mean about Taleb. He's usually much more intellectual than technology. It's just too easy. I don't know about that. I mean, maybe I'm not saying it the right way, but I feel like he's better than that. No, but also and that that's not actually. Yeah. Also, a book of aphorisms is just the same, right? It's all tell and no show. And I think there's only so far that can that can get you. And it's not very far, in my opinion. All right. So what is he telling you? He says the three most harmful addictions are heroin, carbohydrates, and a monthly salary. I think Too I think he's telling you. So heroin and carbs, those are sort of obvious. And I feel like they're setting up uh, a monthly salary. And he's telling you that, you know, like... It's dangerous to be a normie, you know, if you just live a normal life, depending on, you know, once you have a big mortgage, then you're going to need a monthly salary and you're kind of tied to that. You can't, uh, can't be free. Also, can we stop on the carbohydrate hating? It's not, they're not really that bad for you. It's when you abuse them, they are, but there's, there's two different, fundamentally, there's two different types of carbs. There's simple carbs and there's complex carbs. And, you know, complex carbs aren't all that bad for you. If you start your day off with a bowl of oatmeal, that's actually pretty good for you. So I'm just going to leave that out there. No, totally, totally. I think carbs get a lot of hate that they don't deserve just because everybody tries these, like, low-fat diets. And, like, I don't know. Like, fat does keep you keep you satiated longer. So, I don't know. It feels good. But um, I think carbs have taken us a pretty long way in humanity so far and i i think we'll i'll stick by them stick by them a few more years at least i've been eating oatmeal every day for breakfast and uh it's carrying me it's carrying me like a full eight hours until dinner so <laughs> yeah because there's there's two different obviously if you just have candy all day it's it, it's going to be bad for you but complex carbs the difference between simple and complex carbs is simple carbs they kind of just um I guess maybe this is the wrong word, but break down more easily and go straight into your blood flow right away, which is not, it spikes your insulin level very quickly, which is not very good for you. But complex carbs like oatmeal, whole grains, well, they take a lot longer to break down. And so what that means is they actually keep you filled up for a lot longer and it's a more sustained form of energy. So that's another reason I disagree with Taleb as well, because I don't think a carbohydrate addiction is on the same level as a heroin addiction. There's plenty of other things you could get addicted to that are probably worse. I mean, any addiction is probably bad. Maybe joke. Yeah, but I gotta say, I, so the, the key word there is glycemic index. If you look up glycemic index, uh, and they'll get, there'll be a whole chart of like how quickly things will boost your insulin levels, and it tracks fairly consistently that the things, the the, the carb objects that are best are the ones with the highest glycemic index, which is pretty disappointing. Um, it's about what you would expect, like a Krispy Kreme donut, fairly high glycemic index, um, like, uh, a bowl of farro grains, fairly low glycemic index, so on and so forth. Anyway, Frank, continue. But, and you, yeah. I don't want to be too, I don't want to be too, uh, I, I, I just don't think, uh, you know, whether or not they're effective, I personally found that low carb diets are not sustainable. Um, Every social association that is not face-to-face is injurious to your health. I am fully on board with that, especially in like the last 15 months. I, I, think, I think there is, and, and this is ironic because we're, we're using technology to communicate across distance right now, but I do think he's onto something there. 
Sorry guys, I, 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 I lost track of the conversation because I fell down the rabbit hole of looking up glycemic indexes online. Turns out I was totally wrong. Farrow grain has a higher glycemic index than Krispy Kreme donuts. So my apologies to Krispy Kreme Incorporated. Wait, wait, wait. Does I that mean wrong. that you burn through Farrow more quickly than you burn through Krispy Kreme? <laughs> no, no. Just that. Just, just that. The 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 your blood sugar will rise more with Farrow than with uh, with a Krispy Kreme donut because a Krispy Kreme donut most of the calories or a good number of the calories are from fat, uh, whereas with like a big thing of like all these grains, there's just so much starch that it will like boost your blood sugar a lot more. So I don't do this anymore, but what I used to do uh, with my morning oatmeal, now I eat it, I eat a more Spartan bowl of oatmeal these days. But what I used to do is I used to make a big thing of oatmeal on a Pyrex. I'd put in a big scoop, a heaping, heaping tablespoon of sugar, a heaping tablespoon of cocoa. And then I would pour in about a quarter cup of heavy cream and mix it all together and that was the kind of that was sort of the bowl of oatmeal that would really stick with me a combo of simple sugars complex complex carbs and uh and good old-fashioned fat but i think we were talking about face-to-face communication verse right um, right i started to derail that diego i just yeah. i just realized the error of what i had said and i i couldn't let it sit you know yeah it just so would we weigh so heavily on my conscience more, more of the story is it's okay to eat crispy cream donuts because they have a lower glycemic index than feral ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep. so I, I just got uh, the hottest takes of all time in, in the book are you ready for this all right here meditation is a way to be a narcissist without hurting anyone that's super interesting. I want to immediately capture that or maybe support that with the definition of meditation that I heard that I like a lot. Meditation is a state of non-judgmental awareness of the self. Yeah, I, I think I think he's being a little ridiculous here. I, I don't think you can uh, you can so easily uh, blow off uh, a centuries old or maybe even uh, millennia old uh, spiritual practice. Yeah, East and West too, right? I feel like there's there's got to be wisdom there, just in sort of its robustness. If this kind of practice arises although, in all these different disciplines, although I feel like it's been um, maybe I shouldn't use this word on the uh, podcast, but bastardized a little meditation. Like I feel like so. Yes, it's 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 a centuries old practice, but if you look at what a lot of people would deem meditation today. Um, I can kind of see, uh, where he's coming from. A lot of people have, uh, I don't know. I, I, I feel like there's a lot of like, uh, really obnoxious people who are always trying to tell you that you should really just meditate more, dude. Like you're just, you'd be a little more yeah. woke. You'd be a little more in tune. You'd be a little more, uh, you know, whatever. If you, if you just took time and meditated, bro, I don't know. Yeah, so I think I think Taleb is probably ripping on those people because, like, if, what is the point of meditation classically, according to the Eastern tradition? I don't know, is like the obliteration of the self, and it's really tough to spin that into narcissism. I mean, maybe you still could if you if you if you try, but like, it's probably not narcissistic. But how do most people here in America meditate? They treat it as some sort of like way to center yourself and just be aware of your role in life and what you're doing. 
And like, that is kind of inherently narcissistic to say like, okay, like, how am I doing as the protagonist of the world? You know? <laughs> so he, I guess he's kind of making fun of those people a little bit. But so meditation, at least for me, it's mostly like a quieting of my mind. And like, you know, there's different things you can do to do that. Like famously, a lot of people sort of focus on their breathing. And I think that is like a super healthy practice, especially with all this technology, just to try to achieve real silence. And the issue is, if your most fundamental level of reality is yourself, <laughs> meditating, meditating is just this insanely narcissistic exercise. So, so I think Taleb might be onto something there. But ironically, like 90% of the people who tell you you should meditate more are actually relying on technology to help them meditate. Like they all have these apps or they, the most ridiculous one was there was this guy who had some mirror that like was a digital mirror that like he would use for a variety of workouts, but he would also use it to meditate. And I, it's interesting because like Juancho mentioned, yeah, it's good because you can detach from technology and you can detach from like the world, like all these things kind of, uh, you know, that maybe aren't so great influences on our our lives. Um, You know, we kind of talked about that earlier in the uh, podcast about all these things that are, uh, you know, sitting down all day, relying on technology. But ironically, a lot of these people who meditate these days all have apps for it, or they all have, you know, they they rely on technology to get to that space. That's that's just anecdotal, like based on my experience. But a lot of people like wait, wait, meditation so you tell me apps. This guy meditated by by staring lovingly into a digital mirror of himself. Yes. <laughs> okay, that that's what Taleb is making fun of right there, and I think I'm a hundred percent behind Taleb making fun of that because I think that's horrific. <laughs> okay, right, oh last, last 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 one, guys, because I think this one uh, ties back to some of the earlier discussion, and maybe you'll agree with me or not, but I think this one is interesting. Weak men act to satisfy their needs. Stronger men, their duties. Yeah, I'm okay with that. I think that does tie into on the road, right? Like, there's nothing strong yeah, that's what about bulldozing people to get what you want. Wow, I really killed the discussion there. I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, you're good, friend. You did what you wanted to do, and that's what's important. No, I think... <laughs> I think, I think that's a, I think that's a good aphorism. I just think it's it's kind of like it's well taken at face value, you know. That's that's fair enough. It's not very cryptic. Uh, not very cryptic. Not very cryptic. Well, uh, I think the lesson here is that, uh, as Talib would say, uh, hate is harder to fake than love, and we don't really hate anything enough to be. Uh, to, to have a fully dedicated hate read episodes. Uh, who knows? Maybe that may change in the future, but yeah, I don't, um, I don't know. I don't get, I don't get that worked up about any particular books. Um, cause, but, cause uh, you wouldn't have read them book. if you did. I don't know. I know. Look, I, I do think there is something that sometimes I do, Sometimes people, and I, and I think I do this occasionally, sometimes people consume content in part because it gets them angry. That's super true in my experience. We could have a whole other podcast on this because it is super true. Yeah, but I think that content tends to be news often, right? Like news or sort of things that are more digestible or demand a little less 
investment. Yeah, maybe maybe a book is too much. It's like it's too much investment to for a pure hate read. Like you need something that's like you need to like hate read tweets or YouTube videos or or news articles or op eds. Yeah, I feel like we're contributing to negativity on the internet if we just try to hate on like news articles. I mean, like that's the big issue now is that everybody's trying to get clicks by making things that are very irritating and controversial and hateful on like news articles or something. Well, I this episode has made me think that what we ought to really do is we ought to do one of these for uh, Beyond Good and Evil. I think it would be great. Like there, there's like, like I think Talib's aphorisms are great. I really enjoy them. Uh, Beyond good and evil goes to another level. Yeah, I, I and I don't even. I think it'll turn in to like what you're talking about. But at first, we should just all read it and don't. Um, let's not call it a hate read up front. It'll turn into one, as you guys will find out. But um, oh no no no! Uh, I don't think it'll be. I don't think it'll be a hate read. To be honest, I I I I don't. I think I don't it'll lend know. itself to some good discussion. I don't have- yeah, yeah. I think Nietzsche's uh, cool. I don't know much about him, or I, don't, I haven't read much by him, but I think he's cool. Uh, I, yeah. I took a class All on right. him, and I would uh, disagree a little, but that's okay. <laughs> but we'll sh- we'll find out. Let's read Beyond Good and Evil. I think that would be a good episode. I think it'd be a great episode. Um, and you know what? I, I I do think I learned something here when you guys were all having trouble deciding on your hate read. Uh, when conflicted between two choices, take neither. So that's uh, that is uh, Talib's last uh, piece of advice for us today, and I think there's uh, a lot of truth to that. Hmm. I like that. Well, no, imagine like you're trying, like imagine you're trying to decide whom, whom to marry, and you you can't decide between two women. It's probably a sign you shouldn't marry marry either. <laughs> That's a good point. Like, um, like if you're, if you're, or, or like, you know, what profession to pursue? Like, if you can't make the choice, you don't feel passionate enough about either one of them. Um, anyway, uh, let's let's call it a wrap. I don't know if this was a, this hybrid episode really worked, but you know, they're not all going to be home runs, um, and I'm okay with that. Maybe people will hate listen to this episode. I'd be okay with that. Yeah, I would too. It would, it would be fitting. All right, I'm calling it.